For more presentations like this, visit www.xenos.org. So we're in John chapter 1. Uh, two weeks ago, we did the prologue of John, the the whole, uh, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we unpacked that, how uh, John was using sort of Greek philosophical concepts to bring home to them certain realities about who God is. And the bizarre sort of uh, attempt to, uh, how do you write a biography of an eternal being? Where does it start? You know, it was a real challenge, and he went about it in an interesting way, and, you know, basically fleshed out some of the most important base theological principles in Scripture, that God is infinite, he's self-existent, he's always been, he doesn't need uh, anything outside of himself, but he's personal, he's relational, he created us for the purpose of relating to us, and that he took on flesh in the person of Jesus Christ and dwelt among us. And so he just right out of the box hits us with these important aspects of if we're going to study Jesus and Jesus's time and ministry here on earth, um, we need to know that the people around him, the people close to him, like John, who were not people that were, uh, you know, observing him from a distance, but that were spending every day and every night for years with him, believe to the point where they're willing to die that he is God, and that his testimony, his gospel, his, um, his account of that is an eyewitness account of something that he firmly uh, believed in to the point of being willing to die. Now, we skipped over this verse, which was about John the Baptist. I said we'd get back to it. Uh, in the middle of what we were studying last week, in verse 6, he said, there came a man sent from God whose name was John, And he came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. And he was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. So we have John the disciple, and the the, the gospel is his account, his testimony. But he also includes the testimony of this guy, John the Baptist, who was an important figure in Jesus' day. To understand who John the Baptist was, uh, you know, you have to understand that For 400 years, there had been no prophets in Israel. And when you read your Old Testament and you're reading, God is very active in raising up prophets, people to guide the people of Israel, people to teach the people of Israel. They are sometimes performing miracles and doing things to prove that the all-powerful, great creator God of the universe is behind and speaking through these people. And there was 400 years of silence. And so they were waiting for the Messiah. They were expecting the Messiah. And if you go to the very, very, very end of the Old Testament, the very last few passages, you find Malachi 4, 5, uh, chapter 4, 5 through 6. And the Old Testament basically ends like this. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. So like the last thing that God said through a prophet 400 years earlier was Elijah's going to come and he's going to come to prepare the people for the Messiah and the day of judgment. 
And so there was this expectation, not only of the Messiah would come, but before the Messiah comes, apparently Elijah's going to come back, which is crazy. And that's what you should be looking for. And it doesn't say in 400 years, it just says that's what happens next. So generation after generation after generation in the intertestamental period is waiting and expecting and just at any time God might speak again, when's he going to speak? And so the people were thirsty and they were, they were desirous of seeing, you know, what is God going to do next? Now, the Gospel of Luke records that there was a guy, his name was Zacharias. He was a priest, and he was a Levite. He was a righteous man. He was a good man. He was uh, along in years, and he was married to Elizabeth, who was barren. So Zacharias and Elizabeth uh, were these people who loved God, who served God. Uh, They wanted to have children. They were never able to have children. And one day, Zacharias is doing his priestly duties, and the angel Gabriel appears to him and says some really interesting things. He says, you guys are going to have a kid. And he's like, whoa. You know, and the motif here is important because you see a lot of this, you know, the imagery of Abraham and Sarah, the imagery of Samuel, that this is often the way that God works is he kind of creates the miraculous circumstance of a child being born as a part of his declaration of this person is going to be used in a very important and very special way. And so these guys, God has not spoken through a prophet in 400 years, and all of a sudden the angel Gabriel shows up to a priest who's well along in years, and so is his wife, and they've been barren the whole time, and he says, you're going to have a son, and his name's going to be John, and he is going to prepare the way for the Messiah. If we look at Luke 1.16, we see what Gabriel says. He says, and he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the, to the Lord their God. It is he will, who will go as a forerunner for, before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. Now, you're Zacharias. You've read. You're very familiar with the end of the Bible. You know Malachi. What's Gabriel saying? Right? It's like this is the language of Malachi being said that this is the son who's going to be born to you. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit of power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so the Lord, so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So John the Baptist is like the first blip on the radar for 400 years where all of a sudden people are talking like, have you seen this guy, John the Baptist? You know, Zacharias and Elizabeth's kid? His dad says that he saw the angel Gabriel and that his son's going to come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Is this the fulfillment of Malachi? Does that mean that the Messiah is coming? The day of judgment is coming? So this is sort of the, the mystique that John has growing up around him. So he's a big deal. And people are very curious about who he is, what he's doing, what he's about. Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew in 3, 1 through 6, describes John the Baptist and says, Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And for this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Now, John himself had a garment of camel's hair 
and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. So then Jerusalem was go- all Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. So notwithstanding his fashion and dietary choices, <laughs> he was sort of this wild guy who was like living in the woods saying, I'm a prophet of God, I'm making, Isaiah 40 is about me. And, you know, a lot of people think like the way that he looked and the way that he behaved here, that connects, that's sort of what the impression you get of what Elijah was like. They're like, maybe this is Elijah, maybe the Messiah's coming. So people were turning out just to see the spectacle. There'd never been a prophet for 400 years, and now John the Baptist is out crying in the wilderness, and people are getting baptized in the Jordan River. And all these people are turning out. Now that kind of brings us to the question of what is John's baptism? What is that about? It says that he was baptizing Jewish people in the Jordan River. Well, if we look, it already described to us what it is. It says that people were confessing their sins. They were talking about the ways that they had rebelled against God. And he would symbolically wash them away. John's baptism was a symbol of, okay, you are, you are at a point where you are ready to talk honestly about the things that are in your heart that are selfish, the things that are in your heart that are against God, against the law of God. And when you confess those things and you decide that you want to head in another direction, that's what repent means. It means you're going to change your mind about what you're doing. Literally, just change your mind. And when they do that, he says, let's dunk you in the river. And this is something that they were familiar with. This is not Christian baptism. That doesn't exist yet, right? Jesus hasn't come along and he hasn't taught them about, you know, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is something that they did before the time of John as well. And it was something that they developed as sort of a a ritual. It was usually used for non-Jewish people as adults who converted to Judaism And it was symbolic of like, you're a filthy Gentile and you need a bath. It was, you know, you're washing symbolically your sins away. And this is a symbol of a part of how we recognize that you are now have been made clean. So it was very unusual for Jewish people who were born into Judaism to get baptized in this way. It was something that was usually reserved for proselytes, people that were non-Jewish who became Jewish. But the sense here is, is that, you know, Israel has kind of been drifting away. It's been 400 years since there's been a prophet. People have not been taking their faith all that seriously. And John the Baptist comes along and is being a wild man in the wilderness. And people are coming out to see the spectacle of what's going on. And they're being struck in their hearts by the reality of their own rebellion against God. And they're being baptized. It's almost like a rededication of their faith, which is exactly the role that we're told that he was supposed to play. Prepare people in their hearts for the coming of the Messiah, to bring Israel back into an intimate relationship with the Lord. So we continue in the Gospel of John, 1, 15 through 18, and he talks more about John the Baptist. He says in 15, John testified about him and cried out saying, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me has a higher rank than I, 
for he existed before me. For of his fullness we have all received, and grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. And so it's somewhat confusing language. If we break it down, it's even more confusing. If we look at what he said, he says, he, this is what John said. He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. He existed before me, but he comes after me. Why is he saying that? Well, we know that Jesus' ministry starts at the end of John the Baptist's ministry. John the Baptist prepares the way. As Jesus comes into his own and doing his ministry, John literally says, I have to fade away because it's now about him. I was the precursor. I was the, the, the setup, right? And so now my ministry is going to decline because you guys, and he tells his disciples, you guys, if I were you, I'd be following Jesus. I wouldn't be following me out here in the wilderness. I'm just, I'm just preparing the way for him. So he comes after me. That part makes sense because Jesus' ministry starts at the end. He existed before me gets kind of weird because we know that John the Baptist was actually several months older than Jesus because John's mother and Mary were related. There's actually a scene where, you know, the, the two pregnant moms are talking and, you know, Uh, But John was born before Jesus, but here he is saying, Jesus existed before me. And it's because John knows that Jesus is God. He is testifying to the same thing that John, the author of the gospel, was testifying to. He's pointing to the incarnation. He says, Jesus existed before me because Jesus existed before he took on flesh. Before he was born as a baby, he existed in eternity past. So he is of a higher rank than I am, even though his ministry comes after me because he has always been. And so he's just demonstrating that he agrees, he concurs with John's conclusions. And it's clear that John the Baptist is saying, Jesus outranks me. I'm here to serve him. In 17, this part where he says, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. What he's saying is like Moses was a big deal. I mean, almost nobody bigger in the Old Testament than Moses. Wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. And, you know, what he's talking about here when he says the law, he's talking about those books. And what the law does is the law teaches us right from wrong. The law teaches us about the nature and character of who God is And how God wants us to live. And he says, Moses gave us the law, but grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Meaning, Moses gave us a picture, but Jesus is the fulfillment of that picture. We see who God is by reading the law, but we know who God is by interacting with Jesus Christ. And so what he's saying is, Jesus outranks Moses. Jesus outranks John the Baptist. Jesus outranks Moses. And, you know, if you're a Jewish reader at this point, you're like, whoa, bigger than Moses? That's huge. Like, nobody's bigger than Moses. He's like the guy. John's like, no, he's not. No one has seen God at any time, the only begotten God, who 
is in the bosom of the Father. He has explained him. And we see that John is right there confirming point by point what we just read two weeks ago. Jesus is infinite. He preexisted his birth. He is God. He outrakes John the Baptist. He outrakes Moses. Jesus is God. If you want to know what your creator is like, if you want to know what the all-powerful creator God of the universe is like, look to Jesus Christ because he explains him. And so he goes on in verse 19 and says, this is the testimony of John. When the Jews sent him uh, priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who are you? And he confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. They said, what then? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He said, nope. They said, okay, who are you? And give us an answer because we've been sent here by people in authority who want to know. What do you say about yourself? And he said, he quotes Isaiah 40. I'm a voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as Isaiah the prophet said. And so, you know, who is John the Baptist is a question that they were very interested in in the ancient world. Of course, this, the, the religious rulers were wondering because he's, he's gathering an audience, right? People are paying attention to him, right? So he's a potential threat to their power. And they're like, whose team are you on? Are you a Sadducee? Are you a Pharisee? You, what are you? Can we use you for our benefit or do we have to like turn against you? Right? What are you about? And he's very cryptic about that. And here we are 2,000 years later, and it's like, yeah, who is John the Baptist? It's kind of a, a crazy, hard question to answer. It's important. It's meaningful. But who is he? So the religious inspectors come along, and they're like trying to figure him out. And we've got Malachi, like we read before, chapter 4, 5 through 6. Elijah will be sent before the great and terrible day of the Lord, which is a, a term for judgment day, Right? Then we got Gabriel, which we already led in in Luke 1, 17, saying that John the Baptist will come in the spirit and power of Elijah. Then we got John saying, I am not Elijah. And then it gets real crazy when we bring Jesus in, because Jesus was asked point blank, who is Elijah, or who is John the Baptist? And his answer we find in Matthew 11, 14 through 15. He says, if you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. And this is something that Jesus tags in when it's like he's being, he's, this is like Jesus saying, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, know what I mean, know what I mean? You know, he's like, it's uh, not clear, but it's clear. It's kind of this way, but it's kind of not this way. He who has ears, let him hear. And you're just like, oh, Bible. Why must you be this way? (laughs) Is he Elijah or isn't he? What's, how are we to think about this? And why is this so confusing? Why can't it just be clear, right? And there's some important reasons, actually, when you get into it and you try to understand, like, why is the identity of John the Baptist so confusing? It's because there are things going on that were put in motion hundreds and hundreds of years before any of this happened, that's a part of the greater plan of what God is doing. The reason it's not clear, is John the Baptist Elijah or is he not Elijah, is because 
There are two comings of Jesus Christ, but that is a detail that God kept obscure in the Old Testament. There's evidence for it. But usually when the coming of the Messiah was described, it was described as one thing. And they were expecting what? They were expecting the Messiah would come, he would tear down the kingdoms of men, just like Daniel said that he would, and he would establish the eternal rule of God and set up a kingdom that would never be destroyed. If you read Daniel 2, 44, Daniel 7, 22, passages like this, what they're expecting is the kingdoms of men come, the kingdoms of men go, and eventually God says, enough. And he comes and he establishes his rule on earth and has an eternal kingdom that will never be destroyed. One coming. However, stuff like Daniel 9, which is definitely a fascinating passage predicting the coming of the Messiah. In Daniel 9.26, it says the Messiah will come and then he will be cut off. What does that mean? How can the Messiah come, be cut off, and yet establish an eternal kingdom that will never go away? Well, the answer is, if there's two comings, he comes, he's cut off, he comes back, and he establishes that kingdom. And that's consistent with Scripture, but it wasn't clear. It wasn't obvious. If all you're reading is the Old Testament Scriptures, it doesn't stand out to you that there are going to be two comings of the Messiah. And so if there are two comings and Elijah precedes the Messiah, which coming does he precede? Do you see why it gets confusing and complicated? God's answer to that is, John the Baptist comes in the power and the spirit and the power of Elijah. John the Baptist was born, right? He's not reincarnated Elijah. The Bible teaches that there's no such thing as reincarnation. But he is a human being that was born for a specific purpose to play the role. He came in the spirit and power of Elijah as the precursor to the first coming. And so is he Elijah or isn't he Elijah? I mean, wink, wink, nudge, nudge, yep, nope, nope, yep, maybe. But evidently, Elijah will return as a precursor to the second coming. And that won't be John the Baptist who comes in the spirit and the power of Elijah. That will be Elijah as a forerunner to the return of the Messiah. So when Jesus says... If you're willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah, who, who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. And Elijah says, no, I'm not. Or John the Baptist says, no, I'm not Elijah. They're both right. They're correct. And we're not steer wrangling this into something. We're saying, you know, it, it, it depends on your perspective. He's not reincarnated Elijah, but he is come in the spirit and power of Elijah as a precursor to make way for the Messiah in the way that Elijah was promised. And so Elijah came, and Elijah is coming. And Jesus came, and Jesus is coming. And when you put it together like that, you begin to see that, you know, this is actually an incredibly accurate way to say this. If you're willing to accept it, and you have to think about it, and you have to crunch on this, if you have ears, you know, you're going to have to think about this. But saying John the Baptist is Elijah is not incorrect. And saying that he is Elijah is not incorrect. 
So we continue on about John the Baptist here, and we get to verse 24. Now they've been sent from the Pharisees, these questioners, who are you, John? And they asked him and said, okay, so if you're not Elijah and you're not a prophet and you're not the Messiah, why are you baptizing if you're not Christ nor Elijah nor the prophet? And John answered him, I baptize in water, but one among you stands, one whom you do not know. It is he who comes after me, the thong of whose sandal I'm not worthy to untie. The next day he saw Jesus coming and said to him, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he on behalf of whom I said, After me comes a man who has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. I did not recognize him, but so that he might be manifested to Israel, I came baptizing in water. And so again, we go back to John's baptism. And what John is saying is, I'm not the guy. I'm just here to prepare for the guy. My job is to prepare people to receive Jesus Christ. I put people in water, and that symbolically cleanses their sins. But this guy is coming and is now here who's going to really cleanse their sins. It's not going to be a symbol. It's going to be a reality. It's going to be in the fullness. And what does he say? John sees Jesus, and he says, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And this imagery would have been very recognizable to the Jewish people because he's referring to the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system said that, you know, there must be an innocent life that pays the price of judgment for wicked people. The Lamb of God is the literal sacrifice offered up to God. And in the Old Testament sacrificial system, that was symbolic in the same way John's baptism was symbolic. People's sins weren't really forgiven because they killed a goat or a lamb. But what it demonstrated was the wages of sin is death. That if you are evil, then death is the, is the penalty. You are under a death sentence. And you need to know that as you rebel against God, you come under his judgment. But that God also loves you, wants a relationship with you. And so he's going to allow there to be a, an, an, a substitute who takes the punishment for you. But that substitute must not deserve it. People say, why, why did they kill the little lammies? They're so cute. That's so sad. And God's like, I know, that's why it's that way. Because the, the thing that was supposed to land home with you as you watch the sacrificial system is like, this is wrong. This shouldn't happen. Why does the lamb take the punishment that I deserve? Because that lamb definitely doesn't deserve this. And God said, that's a picture of what's to come. But th- what I'm going to do is I'm going to come in the person of Jesus Christ, the true lamb of God, who's going to really take the sins of the world upon himself so that our sins can be forgiven. He will take the punishment for that upon himself even though he doesn't deserve it. So John's saying, look, I, I tell people to repent. I help them see you know, that they need God. And then we do a little thing where we wash them with water to kind of symbolically say that. But who just showed up is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John couldn't be being more clear about 
where he stands in relationship to Jesus Christ. In 32, it says, John testified saying, I have seen the spirit descending as a dove out of heaven and he remained upon him. I did not recognize him, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. I myself, John says, have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Jesus is the real deal, John says. I was sent here to prepare the way for him. I wash people in water, and that's cool. But he puts people into the Holy Spirit of God. That's the testimony of John the Baptist. He understood his role. He was a player. He had a part to play, but he was not the point. He showed people and tried to help people understand their need for forgiveness. He urged people to acknowledge and repent from their sin, to say, you know, God is real and God wants a relationship with you and the choices that you're making right now are leading to your own destruction. You are creating misery and hardship in your life. Because you are going against the reason that God created you. Change your ways and agree with God and find forgiveness. And then he would hand people off to Christ who would truly pay for their sins. Helping people come to a point where they're like, oh my gosh, you're right. I have been in total rebellion against God. What do I need to do? And John was like, my work is done. That's what I do. Now you'll have to, I'll have to refer you to Jesus Christ who will take you the rest of the way. Right? John, he says, baptized with water. Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now what is that about? You know, at this point, I think we have to stop here and say, where does the ritual of baptism that we all know, we've all heard about, Christians baptized, you know, baptism, baptism, John the Baptist, Jewish baptism, Holy Spirit baptism. Where is Christian baptism in all of this? Answers, it doesn't. It's nowhere. It hasn't been discussed yet. None of that has anything to do with any of this. You're like, oh, Bible. Why must you be confusing? Well, okay, the word baptism that we use is a transliteration from a Greek word, baptizo, okay? What baptizo means is literally to put something into something else. So the whole idea of baptism, which is real and something that Jesus said that we should do and, and, and Christians should do it, but the whole idea of baptism that's being used here is John put people into water. That's baptism. Baptizo into water. Jesus puts people into the Holy Spirit of God. He baptizes them into the Holy Spirit. And John's point is, I just symbolically wash them to their sins. Jesus makes it so that God exists in them. I symbolically, you know, help people come to a point where they realize they need God's forgiveness. Jesus makes them so forgiven that they be literally become a temple of God where God dwells inside of them because their sins have been washed clean by his blood. That's what John is saying here. So we can't get tripped up on this baptism ritual and, and miss the incredible reality 
of how John is describing what Jesus did. John put people into water. Jesus puts people into Holy Spirit. And it's so important that we understand this in the larger context that this was exactly God's plan. From the very beginning, going all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, what do we see? God makes man and woman in his image. He creates these beings that are a reflection of his nature. And they're perfectly good, just like he is. They're perfectly just, just like he is. And they're in perfect harmony with him, in a love relationship, because God is a relational God. And so we were made to have a love relationship with our creator. And he was to live and dwell among us. They would walk with the Lord in the cool of the garden. And that's exactly what it was meant to be. Yet, we fell. We rebelled. God gave us free will. We decided we wanted to know good and evil for ourselves. We rejected God. We rejected his ways and said, I'm going to decide for myself what's important. And God said, you can do that, but if you become evil, then you fall under judgment. Because I am good, I have to destroy evil. And because you are becoming evil, I have to destroy you. And he warned them before any of this happened, if you go this way, you will die. Because you were not made to be evil, you were made to be good. So we rebelled. And so God started raising up prophets to give us the law, the Old Testament. People who would rise up, who would, who would explain what's wrong Right? And I think a lot of us, almost all of us, maybe all of us, have that sense. There's something wrong. You know, when you look deep inside your own self, what you probably see is a lot of potential. Something good, something noble, something that's, that's, that's unique, a sense of a greater purpose, a sense of a desire for meaning, wanting to be loved, wanting to be known, wanting to accomplish things. And then if you're also honest, you see something that's desperately sick and broken. Why do I do so many selfish things? Why do I do so many self-destructive things? Why do I try to do the right thing, but always come back to doing things that hurt the people that I love? Why is there this conflict within me? And this explains that. God gives the law, God gives the Old Testament, says this is what you were supposed to be like me. But you've rebelled against that and you've turned against that and you have this sin nature that now drives you to be selfishness. But I'm still in there. You're still created in my image. You're just twisted and broken and you need to be restored. You need to be renewed. And the only way we can do that is if you choose to come back to me because that's what you were made for. So the law shows us how we fall short. It shows us why we need forgiveness. And God gave up, rose up prophets over hundreds and hundreds of years to help lead us back to him, to give us pictures and images, to give us the sacrificial system, to give us an idea of who God is and how we're supposed to relate to him. And then finally, he came in the person of Jesus Christ to literally pay for our sins, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And once Jesus pays for our sins, then we can be restored into intimacy with God, which is our destiny, is our purpose. 
God can literally now dwell in us. The Spirit of God will come and live inside of you, take up residence inside of you because Jesus has cleansed you of sin. God can be close to you now because your sins have been paid for. And this is what God always intended, to be close to us. Intimate, personal relationship. So when John says, I baptize in water, but he puts you into the Holy Spirit, he's saying something that's so important. You go back to the Old Testament and you see that this was always God's plan. Ezekiel 36, 26, 27. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and I put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This isn't a New Testament thing that we made up. This has been a part of God's plan all the time. And maybe you're here and you feel like, oh my God, I have a heart of stone. Well, the good news is that can change this morning. You can surrender that heart of stone over to God and he will give you back a heart of flesh. If you're sitting there and you know that you, and you're realizing I have been so stubborn and so cold and I'm so scared at who I'm becoming, this is what you need to understand, that God has the answer to that. 1 John 4, 13 through 15 says, and God has given us his spirit as proof that we live in him and he in us. Furthermore, we have seen with our own eyes and now testify that the father sent his son to be the savior of the world. All who declare that Jesus is the Son of God have God living in them, and they live in God. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's, we just have to go back. Adam and Eve made a choice in the garden to rebel against God, and so we are all born into rebellion. But we have a choice too, and that choice is to end the rebellion and come home. Lay down your sword and say, God, I'm tired of fighting you. I want to be what I'm supposed to be. I want to I give you my heart of stone and receive back a heart of flesh. And in doing that, we discover our purpose, why we're here. This is what we were made for. Jesus is asked in Matthew, they say, what's the, what's the most important commandment? What's, what's the most important truth in all of the Bible? A lawyer comes to him, Matthew twenty two thirty five, and says, teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor on your, as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. What he's saying is, is I can sum up the Bible in two things. All of the Bible, Old Testament and New, all of Scripture, love God and love your fellow man. That's what it's all about. That's what you are all about. That's what you're made for. Not love self. Love God and love your fellow man. And when you come to that place, as imperfect as we all are, we find our true purpose and what we were made to be. 
The other thing is that we need to realize here is we can do the role. We, can, we get to play the role of John the Baptist today. What did John the Baptist do? He understood his role. He pointed people to their need for forgiveness. He urged people to acknowledge their sin, and he handed them off to Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus Christ? 2 Corinthians 5.20. So we are Christ's ambassadors. God is making an appeal through us. We speak for Christ when we plead, come back to God. For God made Christ who never sinned to be the offering for our sins so that we could be made right with God through Christ. God said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to put my Holy Spirit in everybody who will receive me. And I'm going to make them all John the Baptists. And so they can make a clear path so that people can find me. And that's one of the greatest things that we get to do. One of the most incredible things that we get to do is help people find God. We can't make people find God, but we can bring them in and bring them to a point where they might see and they might open up and their heart of stone might crack because they see the love that we have for them and the love that we have in our lives. The last point from this is, I hope you see that the Bible can be hard work. I mean, it takes some time, you know, to be able to understand these things over a span of a couple thousand years of what's going on and that that the things that God has said in the past need to be consistent with the things that God said in the present and the future, that the Bible must be consistent with itself because God cannot lie. And if the Bible is the word of God, then it can't contradict itself. But you can understand sometimes why people, people think the Bible contradicts itself. You know, if somebody said to me, you know, when I didn't understand the Bible, the Bible contradicts itself. John the Baptist says he's not Elijah. Jesus says he is. What about that? I'd be like, woo, that sounds like a really bad contradiction. In fact, that did happen. The way I became a Bible teacher was I just had so many problems with the Bible. I just, you know, had to find answers. And then they become teachings to share with all of you. I was really bothered by this for a long time. And then, you know, I saw pieces of it, parts of it, and I was like, this is too convoluted. This is too, you know, you have to twist and turn too many things. But then I started under, understanding the, the issue of the two comings. And then I started understanding things that theologians talk about, like inaugurated eschatology and the already not yet tension of the kingdom. And I realized that that is what the Bible is describing. And I'm very satisfied with that answer now, but it has taken me a long time to get the background information about, you know, what God promised through Malachi and what God promised through Ezekiel and what God promised through Daniel and what God said through Jesus Christ. And it fits, but it takes some work. It takes some effort. And sometimes we really have to dig deep to understand this. And I don't mean dig deep like try really hard to pretend like it's not a contradiction. I mean dig deep like be really honest with ourselves and say, look, I'm going to keep grinding away at this until these fit in a way that I'm confident that they fit. And if that doesn't happen, then I need to seek help elsewhere. And if that never happens, then, well, that's a problem and a problem that I'm going to have to deal with. Not that I'm going to sweep under the rug and say, well, this, this one lie is okay. 
The other point is just that it, it's worth it. When you, when you have questions and you see things or you read things and you're like, I don't understand this. This seems wrong. Don't sweep it under the carpet. God doesn't want you to sweep it under the carpet. He wants you to find it the answer because there are answers. And when, you've, when you stick with it and do the hard work, you wind up being more sure than ever that God is God and the universe is a, is a, a crazy place where he exists and he has a purpose for us. The Bible is consistent with itself, and it must be, or it's not from God. Why don't we pray? God, we are super grateful to be in your family, that you do give us a heart of flesh, that your spirit comes and dwells inside of us, that as far from you as we were, as much rebellion and evil and selfishness, that you never gave up on us and that you died for us. And that you welcome us home with open arms when we come to you as repentant children. And we just pray, God, for anyone here that hasn't made that decision, we just ask that they would, it would be heavy on their heart and on their conscience. You know, who are they? Why are they here? And what is their purpose? And that they would hear you loudly knocking at the door of their heart. And we pray for the people in our lives who don't know you, who have no idea who are totally confused about the Bible, who you are, and what Christianity is. We know that we have many of those people in our lives, and we just ask God that we could make a straight path for them to you, and that you would use us in some way as a part of your larger plan to help people come to know you. Amen. This study was recorded at Xenos Christian Fellowship and is copyrighted. You may freely copy and distribute it as long as you keep it intact and do not sell it.